Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10:15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Good morning. We're looking at stories that are well known to us, but that hold what I like to call a missional twist. And I don't know if this is helping to put more color on these stories or if I'm ruining them for you. I hope not. But we've talked about a couple so far, and today I want to talk about Daniel. Daniel is one of those stories that they talk about back in children's church with Tammy and you probably remember, uh, you know, I don't know why it is, but we gravitate when we teach children. We gravitate towards teaching them stories that have animals in them, okay? So we get, so we teach them Noah in the flood, even though that's a horrific story. Um, like, we, we, we teach them those sorts of things because, you know, giraffes, right? And here we get lions, but... They're not exactly cuddly, right? The book of Daniel is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It is so strange and beautiful and wonderful. And it has layers all through it so that it continues to give to you. That's one of the things that I love about the scriptures. And I, I really do love the scriptures. I love the Bible. One of the things that I love about it is the way that a lot of these stories that you've known your whole life, if you'll just slow down and pay attention to them and listen well, they'll give you new layers of things. They'll feed you more, and, and, and they still turn out to be resources uh, for our growth and development and transformation, even after we've heard them for many, many years. Daniel really isn't just that story of the lion's den. It goes way back before then. It's actually a collection of stories and then a collection of prophecies and this apocalyptic energy, uh, stuff that comes after that. It begins with a story about a menu. And you kind of, we're just going to talk about uh, a real overview of how all these things work real quick. I'm going to try not to do that as much today. It starts off with this story about Daniel and his friends, and they're taken into captivity. It's a, it's a story about Israel during their exile, or Judah during their exile to Babylon. And as these young men are taken into captivity, if you'll turn to Daniel chapter 1, I want to read just a few verses at, in, in the first chapter here. It starts like this, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, into Nebuchadnezzar's power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. And these he brought to the land of Shinar, in other words, Babylon. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. So much is contained here to give us context. Everything that you read in the book of Daniel after that has to be read from these couple of verses. 
And those verses have so much influence on the whole of the Old Testament. What we know is the Old Testament is just littered with understanding and meaning that comes from this moment. That there was a time when there was a king in Judah, and the Lord God allowed, and this is very important, right? It's not that just King Nebuchadnezzar by his own power and by his own hand came in and besieged and overthrew Judah. It's that the Lord allowed this to happen. Now, you look carefully here. Daniel doesn't open with anything that the rest of the prophet, oh my gosh, that the rest of the prophets are interested in, which is the wise. It doesn't tell you why he, um, why he was led, why the Jews were led into the captivity. It doesn't tell you about the injustice, and it doesn't tell you about the idolatry and all of those other things that Jeremiah and, and Amos and some of these other prophets are interested in, okay? It just starts with the fact of it. They were taken into captivity. And then the first story that develops is a story about how these young men, it says, and then the king commissioned, this is verse 3, the king commissioned the palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, first in every branch of wisdom. Bow that away. First in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. And they were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the royal ration of food and wine. And they were to be educated for three years so that at the end of the time, they could be stationed in the king's court. And among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. You may not have recognized those last three names, but... The next verse will make it a little clearer. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called what? Abednego. So in this story, this is the framing, again, of everything that's going to follow in the book of Daniel. The king, the emperor of Babylon, as he takes his prisoners into his city, says, save the very best of them. Give me the ones who look the best, are the smartest, and the wisest. Give me the best that Judah has to offer. Retrain them in our literature, which is to say the stories of what? What are the, what's the literature of the Babylonians about? It's the literature about their what? Their gods. Yeah, that's exactly right. So take these young, smart Jewish men and let's teach them how to think like Babylonians. Let's teach them how to dress like Babylonians, how to speak like Babylonians. Let's teach them how to think about the gods of Babylon. Why? so that they can come and be a part of the royal court. And they can come and be stationed here, and they can find ways to serve the empire, right? So give me the best you've got, 
I'll retrain you to be like one of my own, and then I can put you to use. This is the story of Daniel. It's the story of how he will negotiate what it means to be a Jew serving in the court of Babylon. What does it mean for him to be an outsider trying to live in the very shadow of the empire, at the very center of the power of the world, and yet be faithful to his calling as one of the sons of Abraham? That's what all of these stories are about. All these stories that are going to follow are about what it means for Daniel to negotiate that. In this first story, it seems sort of silly, but it's about how he's been given what seems to be a pretty big deal, right? Okay, so you've been brought from your homeland, cry your tears, but let me bribe you into enjoying your new life in Babylon. Here is a portion of the royal table. In other words, you know, Welcome to Babylon. Give up what you used to call your identity. But here's your meal ticket. Hope you enjoy your stay. And not just enough to just get you by. It's a portion of the royal table. It's the best food that Babylon has to offer. It's the very best provisions there. So this is what it starts off. And where we get this strange story about their menu, and it, it doesn't really seem to be necessarily about their insistence on keeping their kosher food laws, but eventually Daniel and his friends, they barter and trade off their royal meal ticket. They end up uh, trying to strike a deal with their guards and saying, tell you what, just give us a simple fare. They're sort of pushing back against the buyout program. And in refusing to do that, they, in order to figure out how they can do that without ticking anybody off, they take this golden ticket that they've been getting, these royal rations, and they sell it to the guards that are watching them. And they use that to kind of negotiate just enough wiggle room, just enough space that they won't have Babylon telling them what to eat and what not to eat anymore. And it's about shrewdness and savvy and learning how to survive in the middle of an empire that won't claim you for its own, but will use you for its own ends. It's about what it means to live in an empire that happily says, you're welcome to be here if you're a Babylonian. but you need to start acting like a Babylonian while you're here. I find that to be profoundly useful to live here in these United States of America. The story goes on from there. It's not just one story. They navigate that well enough, but pretty soon we find uh, them confronted with this story in the second chapter where Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, uh, has a dream And he is absolutely unreasonable in trying to find the solutions to his dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and uh, it's a dream of a statue, and he's 
trying, he wants to, he's so bothered by this dream that he wants to find out the meaning of it. So he calls all of the Babylonian wise men together and he, he wants to find out from them what exactly is going on. But here's the deal. He knows they're liars. He knows from the very beginning that they're just playing games with him, that they're tricking him all the time, right? And so he tells them, I want you to interpret a dream for me. And they're like, great. And they'll tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. You know, they're, they're ready to do their psychic trick. They're ready to read the palms and tell him what, what he wants to hear. And he says, no, I'm not playing that game. I want you to interpret my dream. But before you do that, so that I'll know that you're telling the truth, I want you to tell me what the dream was first and then tell me what it means. And they're like, ah, uh, it doesn't work that way, sir. It doesn't work that way. So all these people that have been trained in the literature and the language of the Babylonians are all having their say. Nebuchadnezzar won't have any of it. And he finally decides, you know what? You guys are useless to me. You haven't actually offered me any true useful wisdom. And I've got a real problem here, here and I don't know what to do about it. And so what does he decide to do? He says, you know what? Just kill all these fools. Kill all these wise men, all these pretenders, these enchanters with their magic tricks and their illusions. He doesn't want like a pin and teller show. He wants to know, he, won't want, he doesn't want to see David Copperfield making the Statue of Liberty disappear for all the Gen Xers out there. That was awesome. He wants truth. He wants to really know what's up. And so he says, get rid of all the fakers for me. So the executioner's going around, like gathering them all up to kill them all, right? And he knocks on Daniel's door, and he's like, hey, come on, I've got to kill you because Nebuchadnezzar is mad at you guys for not interpreting his dream. And Daniel's like, um, hold up. What? What's going on? Like Daniel hasn't been reading his emails. I love that about him. Okay. Daniel's like, wait, what, what, why, 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 why am I in trouble? What's, why is the king mad? And so the executioner, and again, Daniel has to demonstrate savvy as he negotiates the power structures of the empire. And he says, hey, you know what? Why don't, why don't you let me give me a shot at this? And he ends up going to the king and telling the king an interpretation of his dream and what it means and what, Nebuch what this dream is saying about Nebuchadnezzar's both place in God's plan, but also about the limits of the empire. After that, there's a story that I know you know well where the, the three friends who have kind of faded for a little bit here, but the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are, uh, they, they face a challenge about uh, what it means to whether they're going to worship the gods of, um, of the empire or not. The empire, the imperial order is that everybody will do it at a certain time, and they, they refuse, and they're thrown into a furnace, and God preserves their life and saves them in that space. And in that space, there's this incredible speech that the, that the children, the, the, these, these, son, these kids, I say uh, kids, they're not really kids at this point, they're young men. But the time where it comes where they're going to be thrown into a furnace, look with me in chapter 3 in verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. And they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said, is it true, O Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? You don't worship the golden statue that I've set up. If you're ready, 
when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe and the lyre and the tr uh, trigon and harp and drum and entire musical ensemble to fall down and worship the statue that I've made, well and good. Uh, by the way, I think I heard sermons when I was growing up that if it was acapella, it would have been okay, you know? Um, I don't think that's the point of this story. It's the harmonies. The harmonies will get you, right? If you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer the king. And this is so important. Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. So he has them thrown in the fire and God saves them. It's this incredible story, but I want you to pay attention to how these two stories, these last two stories are working together. See what's at work in this overall story of Daniel. They're finding out where those places are that they can come to the king and he wants wisdom for a dream that he can't get anywhere else. And they're willing to say, ah, king, you found the limits of the wisdom of the Babylonians and we can tell you something new here that you couldn't have understood before. But when it comes to the place of worship and whether they'll, wor they'll worship those other gods, they have to find their line, right? And they have to say, no, we can't go into that place the latter three stories work in the same way nebuchadnezzar has another tree, uh, dream and daniel serves the king by offering him an interpretation of this dream even though nebuchadnezzar can't really interpret it well on his own there's a story where another emperor a later Babylonian emperor sees a hand that's writing on the wall, right? The writing on the wall. This is the idiom that we use to say the end of something is coming. There's the right. Oh, we see the writing on the wall. This mysterious hand writes on the palace wall. And it indicates the soon to come end of the Babylonian empire. And when Daniel presents his interpretation of this to this new king, the king has to acknowledge, and he says, you know, basically, thank you for telling me, right? Good job. In the last story, and the, the, the kind of comes in this narrative parts of Daniel, there's one more story where Daniel, uh, the, the king at the time, is, is, has been to told that, um, that there's this guy, Daniel, that in offering his um, supposed service to the king, that he is corrupt and he won't, uh, you know, he won't exactly um, acknowledge all the king's commands. What really happens, if you'll turn with me into Daniel 6. There's this incredible setup for this story, okay? Um, it pleased Darius, and this is a new emperor from a new empire, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents, including Daniel. So 
from all the things that Daniel has done to serve so far, he's risen to be one of the top three in the whole country. And to these, the satraps gave account, and so the king might suffer no loss. So in other words, there's 120 governors, and they're all reporting to these top three. And why is it that they do that? What is it that the king is preserved, that, that he wants to make sure it doesn't happen? He wants to make sure that they don't have any loss. He wants somebody checking the receipts. Why is that? Because empires are always tainted with corruption. It's part of how they work, right? What did the very first story, the menu story, tell us? It told us that there were people in Babylon who, if you gave them your meal ticket, would look the other way when the laws were broken. Daniel earlier has used those corrupt officials to his own account, but now he's raised to be accountable and to hold the rest of the empire in account. Verse 3, soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents, etc., so everybody else, because an excellent spirit was him, and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for a complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no, neglig no negligence or corruption could be found in him. And so the men said, we will not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So what's this telling us about Daniel at this part of the story? This is the lion's den story. Daniel's just good at his job. He does his work well. And his, his, under his authority, the empire, and this is like miraculous, right? The empire is turning away from its corruption. This is a remarkable thing for the text to tell us. They're so shocked. They assume that they can do whatever the politicians do when they want to throw somebody out. Let's just find the dirt, right? Let's just find the dirt and we'll, we'll make a big stink about it. And this guy will be out of our way and we can go back to greasing our pockets like we want to. You guys see that happening? Okay. And then finally they say, well, that's not going to work. And so they make the most ridiculous law they can think of. They talk the, law, the, the king into making up a law. Then, and your text probably says, so that no one will pray to anybody else except for the king for this period of time. Is that, is that what you're saying? You say pray? That word is a more generic word. It can mean like just petition or ask. It's like, we want to make a law, king, that nobody will ask anybody else for anything else except for you. By the way, this is a terrible way to run an empire. Because they know that Daniel makes a practice three times a day, opening up his windows and praying to God, asking God for things, asking God for deliverance. We have a chapter later that is going to talk about asking where Daniel prays and asks for forgiveness for his people, for their sins and the things that led to this whole exile to start with. Daniel does that every day, and they know that he won't stop. And so they get the king, and he writes this law, and he, sure enough, when Daniel opens up his windows and prays to God, they're like, aha, we got him. And they order that he be sent to a den of lions. And the king knows that he's messed up. The king knows that this whole pro that this is really his mistake. 
but he long and he longs to release Daniel, but he knows that he's kind of been he's fallen for this trap. And so Darius eventually is resigned that Daniel's just gonna have to die. He's taking his most loyal, faithful servant. This guy who is like single-handedly stamping out the corruption of the empire, which by the way means more of the money that's supposed to is making its way to Darius's pocket. Darius's motivations are just kindness. And he's clearly, well, I've got to, I've got to make sure that everybody knows that I'm the big boss man and you can't mess with me. If he violates my authority as king, he has to die. That's the one thing he can't allow Daniel to do. He can do, he cannot disobey him. So he has him thrown into this den of lions and God miraculously rescues him and saves him and he survives. This is the story of Daniel. This is who Daniel is. He's a person who has been captured and he's put in a place where he's being told to serve the people who have captured him. His boss is the great villain of his people. Choose your biggest enemy, whoever you would say it was, right? And it would be hard for you if you were an ancient Jew to pick anybody that would make that list more than Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that brought the destruction on Israel that fills the book of Lamentations with all its gnashing of teeth and its sorrow and its agony. He's the one that's caused the greatest pain and suffering that Judah ever known, the destruction of all that they were. And Daniel goes, and he starts clocking in. Nebuchadnezzar's not just his enemy. He's also his boss. Here. And in this place, Daniel finds himself. And he both, Daniel, serves and resists the empire. The book of Daniel is about finding all that. By the way, this is something that God had mysteriously told his people to do while they were in exile. You've probably, you know, uh, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, you, for you know the plans that I have for you, the Lord says. You know this verse, right? Come on, you guys have coffee cups with it. You know, the, this is what's on our graduation invitations, you know. Or you know the plans that you have for us to send you into exile. That part's not really in there, but yeah. Just a few verses before that in Jeremiah 29, before that famous verse, Jeremiah tells the people, I'm sending you in exile. And by the way, these false prophets that are telling you this is all going to blow over in a week, it's not. You're going to go there for 70 years. And Jeremiah tells them, while you're there, seek the welfare of that city. 
In other words, go to Babylon. And don't think you can go there and leave your bags packed to come home. Go there. Unload the truck. Put pictures on the wall. And learn how to be a good neighbor in Babylon. This is what Daniel does. He goes there and he serves the emperor. And he also finds those places of resisting the emperor. He finds those places where he can both serve what is the the interest of the king, but without becoming just another Babylonian. Daniel negotiates life in the empire. And in order to do that, he needs both wisdom and integrity. He needs the savvy to just see what will finally get him fried or not, but also the integrity to say, here are the lines past which I cannot go. Daniel finds what it means to be a person who can live in Babylon while still being a faithful son of Abraham. I find this story so challenging. It's challenging to me because I know that there are so many things that are so wonderful about the the place in which I live. And I also know that there are places that I cannot go with my neighbors. I know that there are gods that they worship to which I cannot bow the knee. And I'm trying to figure out what it means to live here well and to both serve my neighbors and also to retain my identity as someone who is following the way of Jesus. And y'all, sometimes I don't know where that line is. Anybody else ever there? Rich Mullins has a long a line in a song long written a long time ago. I'll call you my country, but I'll be longing for my home. And that line's haunted me for a long time because I'm trying to figure out what it means to both live here well, but also to cultivate a longing for the place where there's only one God that's worshiped anymore. When I think about these stories and what we're doing with all of these stories and their little missional twist in them, what I think is happening in the book of Daniel, and it's something that happens both in the ways that he serves and in his resistance. I think they're both of those things are part of the way that he is bearing witness to the hidden reign of God in that world. And her service is a witness. His wisdom is a witness. 
and his resistance is a witness, and his integrity is a witness. And all of these point subtly and sometimes boldly to the truth that Nebuchadnezzar, as powerful and strong as he is, and the people that come after him, Belshazzar or Darius or whoever else is in charge and whoever else the kingdom belongs to in that moment, all of those empires are still in subjection to the hidden reign of the one true king. One of the subtle ways that Daniel does this is by showing us, hey, sometimes it's a different king on the throne. So someday, so at the beginning, he's following Nebuchadnezzar, and then he's all of a sudden, it's without much fanfare, Nebuchadnezzar's gone, and Belshazzar is in his place. And without much fanfare after that, well, Belshazzar is gone, and Darius is there. And it's part of Daniel's great message that the great kingdoms of the world will come and go. And only one king will reign in the end. And Daniel will faithfully serve in all those kings' kingdoms. But the truth is, the truth is that he was really only faithfully allegiant and serving one king the whole time. Would you stand with me? The ancestors of our faith went through crisis after crisis where they had to decide where their full allegiance went. I charge you, the people of God in this place, gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus, Follow the way of our ancestor, Daniel. Bear witness. Bear witness in your service. Bear witness in your resistance. Bear witness as you bow down before God. And bear witness as you refuse to bow before any other idol. Bear witness to the hidden reign of God until every knee shall bow to the true King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together.